uh, we're going to jump right into it. We concluded uh, our study of the parable of the Minas in Luke 19, and we're going to pick up with a triumphal entry. We're coming into the Easter season. We're coming into Palm Sunday. We're going to kind of have a, a preemptive study of what we're going to be experiencing as a congregation in the coming weeks. Uh, if you need a Bible, the folks walking down the aisle will give you one. Uh, the New Testament is Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's the third book of the New Testament, and we're going to be in chapter 19. Uh, we're going to go through it together. Before we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, I wanted to refresh what we had covered last week. We did the parable of the ten minas, which is a parable that Jesus was sharing about a king who comes into his kingdom and the citizens um, didn't want him to rule over them. And the scripture actually says they hated him. Uh, the citizens hated him and they said he will not reign over us. And then he, he gives one mina to uh, ten different fellas and the guy that multiplied it got 10 cities, uh, t- you know, tenfold, he got 10 cities. And we went through the whole picture of that. And, and at the conclusion of it, uh, interestingly enough, the Lord finishes this parable. And, and, it, and it's a troubling uh, way to end the parable. And a lot of folks were probably turned off by it. And you're not the first to have been turned off by it. This, uh, thousands of people over thousands of years have seen this verse and it's troubled them. And I'm not the first minister who's put it forward and had to contend with you being troubled. Uh, that's my role. That's what I signed up for. And this is the verse. It says, um, but bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. And you're like, man, if this is a parable and the Lord's the king and, and the faithful are the ones that are entrusted and they proportionally are blessed and, and then as, as they do more, God gives them more and, and then the ones that hate him and don't want him to rule over them, he kills them? What kind of a God would do that? I thought God was loving. And this is a, this is a hard one. But the reality of it is Jesus came into this world as a savior He's coming back as a king, and he's coming into his kingdom, and the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein, and he holds the heavens in the span of his hand. You can agree or disagree. That's fine. But in the realm of that, we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. We've been created, and some folks say I'm a self-made man or woman, and I always say, what part of yourself did you make? And there's, only, there's two ideologies. There's either, there's either a designer, and there's a God, and we're accountable to him, or there isn't, and we make up the rules. And there's no absolutes for the ones over here. And I always laugh at that because if you've heard me say, I I go, do you believe that absolutely? Which is contradictory. (laughs) Process it. And then over here, we're accountable to God. He, He fashioned us, he formed us, he made us, he gave us rules to live by. But what's fascinating about all of it is as you see this passage, it burdens us. It burdens us. And we concluded with that verse last week. And I didn't really dwell on it. Um, and, and, and before we, we go into the reading, I just I want to say this. In today's study, it's called the triumphal entry. And I pray all of your concerns will be usaged. Usage means comforted um, through this study. Even if, even if you find this hard to stomach, um, even if you're one who says, I don't believe in hell. I believe in the scriptures, but I don't believe in hell. And I, I would simply say to you, no one talked more of hell in the Bible than Jesus. You can do your homework and check it out. And the reason why is he didn't want anyone to go there. For anyone to get to hell, you have to get through that barrier behind me, the cross of Christ. You have to step over it and say, I don't want your salvation. I don't want your forgiveness. I don't want your rule in my life. You're not going to be the king of me. And you step over that cross and you, you sing the, the theme song in hell, I did it my way. <laughs> Although that's not probably very fair because uh, Frank Sinatra was a pretty cool dude. As was John Lennon. Imagine there's no heaven. In the end of his life, he voted for Reagan. Study, just look at it. I, I'm throwing that. He started realizing, well, maybe there is. Not, not voting for Reagan makes you think there's heaven, but he started to contemplate the things that he had learned in his youth. And if, if you're, yeah. So you're gonna be comforted. Be patient, put your thinking caps on. I'm gonna walk you through a, a lesson and a study. Um, with that being said, 
let's, uh, let's begin with the reading of the word of the Lord. So would you stand with me? We're going to be in verse 28. I'm going to read out loud. I'll read out loud if you'll follow along silently. When Jesus had said this, and that's the passage that we covered where but bring those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. When Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. We'll cover that in a moment. And it came to pass when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, these are not the droids you're looking for. No. (laughs) And they said, the Lord has need of him. And then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as he went... Many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, and by the way, this comes out of the scriptures, and we're going to see it momentarily. This is Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is, he who, uh, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then we begin with verse 39. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd saying, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Uh, Vespasian, Titus Vespasian, 70 AD, this occurred. You can see Josephus Flavius, the historian, who describes this embankment and the siege of Jerusalem and the temple being destroyed because the gold after the fire had melted into the crevices and they tore the stones apart. And you go there today and you can see the work of the Romans. And this is what the Lord was prophesying before it happened. Um, But the rest of it, that's not the part we're gonna focus on. The rest of it is. And so let's pray. Lord, we thank you that as you disclose to us your triumphal entry and these messianic passages that saturate Luke 19, this imagery, and Lord, even the path you chose to enter into the city, and then you would declare that if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, God, for those who are troubled by the verse we concluded with last week, that you declared that they are to bring their enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me, but Lord, let us now see the conclusion of this matter in such a way that the scales would be removed and our eyes would be opened. And so, Lord, bless us, we pray, as we study your word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So in this verse, this idea that we concluded last week's study with the Lord basically declaring that all religions lead to God... All religions lead to God. Only one religion leads to heaven. How do we know that? The Bible says it's appointed once for a man to die. Then we stand before God and give an accounting of our life judgment. You're either on the right or on the left. And that's not political terms. That's the idea of either you've honored God or you've rejected so great a salvation. Now, that being said, you can live in a world where you dismiss metaphysical concepts of love and hate and good and evil and right and wrong. And you make your own rules and you only live in a physical world and there is no designer. This is primordial soup. It's cosmic accident and you are part of it and when you die you just dissipate back into matter and there is no life to come. More people probably on the earth believe that than don't. And thus we have a conflicting ideology. 
Where we are today is this idea of we're looking at the scripture that there is a God and you and I are not him. And I did say him and I'm not messing up my words. That's the scriptures. You don't like it, take it up with him. I don't need to defend that. It's there. And so as we look at that and we say, okay, there's, there's two opposing ideologies, a world without a God and a world with God. And if there is someone we're accountable to and we have this moral law, we come to a place where there will be a judgment. There will be a judgment. And, and in this idea that there will be a judgment, remember this. God made us. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. He holds the heavens in the span of his hand. You've been fearfully and wonderfully made, fashioned together in your mother's womb. You've been created unlike anything else in all of his creation with the ability to love. Love is a choice. My wife and I will be married April 21st of this year for 30 years. Not because I wear a wedding ring. Thank you, the two that clapped. Hey, to celebrate a birthday, you just got to stay alive. To celebrate an anniversary, you got to stop from killing each other. <laughs> oh, calm down, sister. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't remain married to my wife because I wear a wedding ring or that I said some words in front of a minister. It's, it's a choice, and, and she remains with me by a choice. Love is a choice. God created us relationally. He said, let us make man in our image. And then he creates this trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He creates us relationally, man and woman. We have a longing in our heart a desire not to be alone. And, and that, it's actually the only estate that survived the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, which is the estate of marriage. And, and, and the reason why God made marriage, and I ask this of couples who are, are doing premarital counseling, you know, they, they go through all the studies and everything, and then I ask them this one question. I say, why did God make marriage? And they're like, oh, to procreate? I go, no, you can do that outside of marriage. Uh, to, you know, finances. Uh, uh, and they go through the whole thing. I go, no, it's real simple. It's the only thing that wasn't good in all of God's creation is he said it's not good that man should be alone. He made it to cure the aloneness of man. Some people have the gift of, of singleness, but they also appreciate solid friendships. No one wants to be alone. And, and sometimes we do because our world is so miserable and, and you know, we, we've come to a conclusion that uh, it's everybody else's fault, not our own, and we don't want to engage in that. And that's a whole different story when we don't have time to talk about that. But God made us relationally, and he wants to have a relationship with us. And so when he created Adam and Eve, put them in the Garden of Eden, he said, all of this is yours except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that, because if you do, dying, you'll surely die. And basically what it was, everyone, um, you know, look to your left now at that red sign that says exit. Do you see it above the door? Why are you looking at me? I said, look at the red sign. And if you can't see that one, just look behind you at that one. These are exit signs. You don't have to stay here. You can leave. And you can leave. It's not a prison. Some of you are going, well, you don't know what my family would do to me if I, well, okay, I can't help you with that. But the reality is the exit sign is what God gave in the Garden of Eden. If you don't want to have a relationship with me, love is a choice, you can leave. Michelle can walk out anytime she wants and I can do the same, but the Bible says that the two have become one. Let what God has brought together, let no man separate. We came together because God brought us together. We made a commitment before God and we're keeping that. There have been times where it's been tough. But we're keeping that. God keeps his word, so do we. Marriage is critical. We go in and out of relationships like we change clothes. God wants a relationship to abide, to survive. It's critical to society. And so, with that, God created this, and, and mankind chose to leave. And in dying, the Bible says, when you sin, when you eat of that tree, dying you will surely die. It's it's. it's it's present and progressive. So God did something for mankind where they were, instead of sealing them in their perdition and being destroyed, he gave them time, time on the earth. He sealed them from eternity and put them on the earth where when you're born, you begin to die. And on every tombstone anywhere in the world, whether you've been cremated or buried, you'll have a plaque, and on the plaque is the year of your birth, the year of your death, and that dash in between, that's what life is, it's a dash. The older we are, the more we realize how true that is. It's a dash. Some of you younger folks are going, man, I can't wait to, you'll get to where we are, like, slow down. And you're getting speed wobble going down the hill, and parts are falling off. 
but birth and death, that, that dash. And the whole purpose of mankind is this obscure Latin word that we've come to despise the more we're secular progressive. It's called religion. Ooh. Religion in Latin means to relink, relungari, reconnect. You're separated from God. And maybe you've separated because a loved one died or you tried to say a prayer and God didn't play by your tune and you gave up a long time ago and you don't like the rules and you were raised in a, a hardcore legalistic family or you were in a church that was terrible or the pastor committed adultery or, 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 or you've watched television with the whatever. You've got a thousand reasons why. And all those reasons are irrelevant because there is a God in the universe who holds the heavens in the span of his hand. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to reconnect with you. And so, relungari, religion, is to reconnect. But we can't. We're separated from God because of our iniquity, our sin. And so, here's the picture of what we're witnessing today. And it's a big, long introduction, but here's the picture. Christ came as the Lamb of God to be sacrificed for the sins of the world because blood has to be shed for the remission of sins. Sin is a capital punishment. It is cosmic treason. It's an offense against God. And so whether you agree or not, the clock's still ticking. That dash is running out. And you're going to come to the end and you will stand before God whether you believe in him or not. And here's a good, here's a good news for me. If you're a secular progressive and you only believe in a materialistic world that you're just going to dissipate into matter, if you're right and I'm wrong, I'm good. I'm good. If you're wrong and I'm right, just saying. And, and I'm, going to give you, I'm going to give you evidence that you have to ponder and the unexamined life isn't worth living. I'm going to give you evidence today. I'm not. The scriptures are. We're just going to open them up. We're going to see what it has to say. And you're going to be left with a decision. Now you can dismiss it and move on with your life and whistle by the graveyard. But the clock is ticking. And it's not a fear-based issue. The idea is examine your life. Why are you here? I know I'm here. I was here to reconnect with God and to try to reconnect others with him. Now it's hard to do because we live in a fallen world and there's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of anger these days, a lot of warring and fighting, we're all opinionated, we're very selfish, prideful. I'm the most humble man I know. <laughs> Actually, Moses said that of himself. The most humble man who ever lived, he wrote that. You're <laughs> like, oh, come on. But the idea is, there is a God and he wants to speak to you today. And he's going to use something that Peter wrote. Peter said, I'm going to share with you the more sure word of prophecy. I'm going to show you something that was written thousands of years ago that was fulfilled in your lifetime. I'm going to show you something that was written thousands of years ago that's still to be fulfilled. And I'm going to show you what are called messianic prophecies. There's over 3,000 of them. If, if, if just eight of them in their context would be fulfilled. They'd be like covering the state of Texas three feet deep in silver dollars, painting one of them red, throwing it somewhere in the massive state of Texas, parachuting a blind man into Texas, letting the winds take him as, he, as they please. Wherever he lands, he's allowed to walk the entire state, but he's only allowed to pick up one silver dollar. That would be the statistical equivalence of just eight of the over 3,000 prophecies being fulfilled. So if you're looking for evidence that demands a verdict, you'll get it today. But I don't think we're looking for a verdict because the reality of it is you're not going to be convinced by evidence. Hopefully you will be. It really boils down to I just don't want anyone telling me what to do. I don't want my parents telling me what to do. I don't want God telling me what to do. I want it my way. Theme song. The passage that we ended with was here, and then it says, when he had said this, this passage, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. This is the direction that he takes according to what we read in the scripture. Here's the direction. He starts in Bethany, goes through Bethpage, and you can see this on your left, and then he gets to the Mount of Olives, you see that just be below Bethpage, and he looks down into the Garden of Gethsemane, and by the way, anyone, anyone who's gone to Israel on one of the trips we've taken, 
has stood on this spot. What we do is we come into Jerusalem just at sunset. And we're coming up to Jerusalem. Uh, and as we're coming up to Jerusalem, we go through the tunnel. And we always, we always time it this way. Sunset through the tunnel. And we play a song by Bill Gaither. And it's called Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And as it gets to the crescendo, we come through the tunnel. And there's, this, there's, there's the Temple Mount and the sun shining on it. The sun's setting. And you're like, just takes your breath away. And we drive up into there, into Beth Page, and we go through the Muslim quarter. We park the bus at one of the most iconic views in all the world, and there you see it. And that's the picture and the direction from which Jesus came. You're looking from that spot where we take the iconic photo of the team that went on the trip, and looking that direction towards the temple is the direction Jesus took to come in to Jerusalem. He goes through the, the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and he, he, that's where he spent the last evening of his, uh, before he was to be crucified and apprehended. That's, we, we often take a trip there. We get a special location where the public doesn't go. You pay extra to go into that garden. It's worth it. You see these ancient olive trees. It's, it's a profound, profound visit. And the scripture says that the Lord comes in through this direction into the eastern gate, and he's riding on a donkey. And Ken Graves, who's the pastor at Calvary Chapel, Bangor, Maine, and he's spoken here on a number of occasions. He's a, he's a cross between Leonidas and Shakespeare. He's just a bulking man. He's got this deep voice, and he grapples for fun. And, and he speaks of, of how humiliating riding a donkey is. You know, you, you have this carpenter who's probably ripped, and, and, and he's riding this, this donkey. It's a, it's a Nubian donkey. That was the donkey of the location. He's riding this Nubian donkey. His legs are probably dragging on the ground. It's not a steed that you come in like Washington on a white horse or, you know. He's coming in on this little Nubian donkey. <laughs> And, and, and the whole way it came together is, is the, the two disciples came down into the city, came to the man who owned it or the people who owned it, and they start to unloose it and they say, what are you doing? And he says, the Lord has need of it. And, and, and it's not like they did the Jedi mind trick, the Lord has need of this. Oh, the Lord had need of it. No, the Lord had probably in his previous visits to Jerusalem had paid in advance, which is typical um, of, of an animal owner. He had rented it, and he said, I'm going to pick it up on this day. And when they come in, he had recognized him to be Lord. He says, okay, and they let the, the donkey go. And it was, it was a colt. And what's interesting is there's a Nubian donkey. And, uh, and here's a better picture. The Nubian donkey is the only donkey in the world that has a cross on its back. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. It was a prophetic fulfillment, a messianic prophecy. Zechariah was written hundreds of years before this occurred. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's got this cross. And as he comes into the city, all the people began to shout, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Uh, John 12 would declare the same. And as he comes in, uh, they shout this. And this is, a messianic, this is a messianic psalm declaring the arrival of the Messiah. And they're stating it. And they're, they're chanting Psalm 118.26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's the, the Hebrew word is Hosanna. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And here he comes in, and as, as he's coming in, they're laying down palm fronds, they're putting their clothing down, and they're worshiping him. And, and, and the Pharisees cry out and say uh, to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're declaring you to be the Messiah. They knew what the psalm was, and they're calling him the Messiah. And, he's, and, and the Pharisees are saying, tell him to shut up. This is blasphemy. And then Jesus says, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. All creation speaks of the glory of God. It doesn't matter if you open your mouth. Everything in creation does. The birds sing in the morning. All creation speaks of the glory of God. And it's profound. And there is order to the universe. And he holds the heavens on nothing. And here we are today to figure out, why are we here? And I said I'd give you evidence. And the evidence, interestingly enough, about this is that the Lord picks an entry direction. He deliberately goes through the eastern gate. 
It says in John chapter 12, the next day a great multitude that had come to the Passover feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees, went out to meet him, cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And yet, what's interesting is we have to notice what gate he came through because it says Bethpage, Bethany, comes through the, the Kidron Valley, through uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's coming in to the Eastern Gate. So what? Eastern Gate, who cares? What's the significance of a rusty old gate? Just a way to get into a city, right? Who cares what gate it is? There were 11 gates that had been built by Nehemiah. 11 gates at the time of Jesus' entry. He had built them. And it turns out that of all the ones that were built, Jesus decides to go through the eastern gate. Now, let me go through the gates that, that were there. There are 11. There were supposed to be 12, but there were 11. There was the muster gate, the dung gate, the water gate, the valley gate, the Essene gate, the fountain gate, the horse gate, the sheep gate, the fish gate, the old gate, the east gate. And there was also supposed to be Russia gate, but that didn't, um, that's a joke. <laughs> I had to throw that in there. You <laughs> see how that was? That's a joke. There's only 11 gates. Now, Today, interestingly enough, there's not 11 gates. There's not 11 gates. There's only eight. And the tours we take, we've gone through almost each of the gates, save but for one. Of the eight gates that circle the city, that, and that wall was built in the 1500s, I'm going to cover that momentarily, of the wall that is now circling Jerusalem, because the original wall with the 11 gates by Nehemiah had been destroyed, 70 AD, we're covering that, yes? In the 1500s, a guy by the name of Suleiman the Magnificent. <laughs> built this wall in the 1500s, and he built eight gates. And one in particular was the Eastern Gate. And he ruled around 1538. And let me read this about the Eastern Gate. The East Gate is the oldest gate in Jerusalem and likely the one Jesus used on Palm Sunday, because it is. This is the direction he went. It had the, great, the easiest direction entrance into the original temple. You could see it from the Mount of Olives where he prayed. And on a clear sunny day, he could see directly into the temple like the others. Because of its proximity to the temple, the East Gate had become very important and controversial to Jews, Muslims, and Christians alike. And here's why. According to Jewish literature, the East Gate is where the temple messenger passed through on the way to taking the sacrificial lamb to the desert. Sins were put on it. They put it out in the desert. The scapegoat. Remember that? It also remains as an indication of their belief of where the Messiah who is yet to come will re-enter the city uh, on Yom Kippur. For Muslims, they believe the East Gate is where Allah received his final judgment and is the site of future resurrection. No doubt, they also remember who built the current city wall, which was Suleiman the Magnificent. For Christians, the East Gate is where Jesus made his triumphal entry, John 12, Luke 19, it's likely also the gate he exited through to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night of his arrest in Matthew 26, and the one he passed through 40 days after his resurrection when the disciples accompanied him to the Mount of Olives before his last ascension. That's in Acts chapter 1. Suleiman the Magnificent strongly believed the prophecy that he sealed up the gate he had built only three years earlier to prevent Jesus from coming. The gate has remained sealed ever since. The prophecy he spoke of was Ezekiel 43.4. It had been made to his awareness. He didn't want anyone contending in the 1500s. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by the way in which faces towards the east, the eastern gate. So Suleiman puts concrete in it, you know, fills it with all kinds of blockings. And here's Suleiman the Magnificent. He was the sultan of the Ottoman Empire. The eastern gate was sealed shut with 15 feet of cement in A.D. 1540 to 41 by order of Suleiman the Magnificent. If you want to know where the eastern gate is, this is the iconic photo of where we've always looked when we've gone to uh, Israel as a group. This is the picture. The eastern gate is that, the arches. And it's sealed and it's got concrete. And... In front of it, on the descending mountain, is all the, the Hebrew cemeteries, the, 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 the uh, boxes, crypts, yeah, I don't, there's another term for it, ossuaries, and they, they go down the hill. Coming through the Kidron Valley up 
to the eastern gate, not only did Suleiman dictate that you had to fill it with cement, shut that gate, keep the Messiah out, but we're going to put dead people in front of it because no rabbi can defile himself and they have to go through the dead bodies and we're going to prevent that. Well, in 1969, there was a guy by the name of James Fleming who was an archaeologist and he was digging in a tomb, uh, one of the Muslim tombs on the mount, and he came across these bones, but in the tomb itself, you see this archway? I had to blow the picture up, and you can go and look at it. James Fleming, you can do it on your own, 1969. He sees the bones in this, this Muslim uh, tomb, and he notices, and this is below the surface of, this, of, of the dirt. The gate that Suleiman built is above it. He sealed it, but below it happens to be the original gate during Nehemiah's time, and this is the archway of the original gate in Nehemiah's time. This is a picture, if you were to look at it, archaeologically. The brown is the dirt, obviously. There's the tomb. That's the tomb. And as you can see, the arch of the golden gate or the eastern gate is in that tomb. You see that? Hello? Good, 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 good. And then if you travel around today, you'll see the lower portion of an earlier wall, and then you'll see the 16th century wall above it. You see the present ground level. That's what you're seeing is that arch above. That's the one Suleiman made. But the one below is the one that the Lord walked through. And he's going to enter through that gate upon his return. Here's, here's the bummer about Suleiman. Suleiman read Ezekiel 43. He had seen this idea of Zechariah 9.9, him coming in on a colt, especially a colt with a cross. Fascinating. He had seen Psalm 118.26, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But he reads Ezekiel 43, and he says, nobody's coming through that eastern gate. He had built it three years earlier. He decides to fill it and close it. He forgot to read the next chapter. He then brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces towards the east, but it was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no man shall enter it, because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. Therefore, it shall be shut. <laughs> Jesus came as a suffering Messiah to die in your place and mine. He came in humility on the foal of a donkey, or on a donkey, excuse me, legs dragging, the people who'd be cheering for him would later be calling for his crucifixion. He went up the Via Dolorosa. He was beaten and marred more than any other man in the history of the world. He was crucified, bled, died, buried, and resurrected. He came to save. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He went through that gate. He'll come back through that gate, but he's not coming as a Messiah. He's coming back into his kingdom, not as a suffering servant, but as a king. And he's going to be riding a white horse, and he's going to open up a can of Jesus. You won't get the lid on. And he's coming through that gate, and it will remain sealed until he does. And you're like, oh, there's dead bodies there. Hmm. Oh, oh, that's a problem for God. <laughs> he's going through that gate. The prophecy's been fulfilled, he's going through it. And when he comes back, he's not coming to save, he's coming to judge. He's coming back into that which is his own. It's his kingdom. We are his. We've been formed and fashioned and built by him. This is his world. We're, we're breathing his air, drinking his water, living on his dirt. This is his kingdom. He gave us rules to live by. And we said, forget it. We kill one another. We lie to one another. We cheat one another. We, we call it good what is evil, and evil is good. We run, we run the rules by our own design. And yet the God who has designed us and the God who will hold us accountable is coming back. And he knows all of us have failed. The word sin means to miss the target. Here's the bullseye. Here's the arrow. The distance is called the sin distance in archery. Nobody's perfect. And there's two religions in the world. There's man trying to get to God by do's and don'ts. And you'll never hit the bullseye. And then there's God coming to man as a, as a savior. He just moves the bullseye to where you are. He forgives you. How? 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 
Well, he says, I've, I've died in your place. I paid the penalty. If you'll receive that by faith, I'll forgive you. Wait a minute. You'll forgive me? Yeah. I'll reconcile you. I'll reconnect you. I'll relungari. But what about the law? I gave the law so you'd learn how to love one another and live together. I was saving by grace back in Genesis 15 when Abraham believed me and I gave it to him as righteousness. Do you believe me? Do you believe that I'm the Messiah that I bled and died in your place? I paid the penalty for your sin. Will you receive that by faith through grace? I'll save you. I'll make it right. I'll reconnect you. Though your sins are as scarlet, let's reason together. Just bring them to me. I'll wash them as white as snow. I'll cast them as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. We can fix this right now. Amen. And here's some, here's some really good evidence of that. I mean, look at these gates and look at this. And you're like, whatever. Whatever. It's never going to happen. Preachers like you have been doing this for 2,000 years. God still hasn't come. You're blowing hot air and you're wasting my time. My teacher knows more than you. There's no God. You're right. There's been skeptics in rooms like this for thousands of years. And preachers like me have been saying this same old story for thousands of years. And some believe and some don't. And there are days where it gets tiring. There's days where you struggle. But as I was thinking about this idea of Suleiman and that eastern gate, he believed so strongly to seal that thing up. You know what the east gate used? It had different names. The eastern gate had different names. Four different names to be exact. It's known as the Golden Gate, the Gate of Eternal Life, the Mercy Gate, the Beautiful Gate. The Beautiful Gate is the only one specifically mentioned in the Bible. Think about that, the Mercy Gate, the Beautiful Gate, the, eternal, the Gate of Eternal Life. I think about what God is trying to tell us this morning. But you just want to dismiss it. I don't believe he's coming back. I don't believe Ezekiel 44. Okay. All right. You know what's interesting is thousands of years ago when the Lord did his triumphal entry, he thought about you. He had you on his mind. Oh, give me a break. No, he did. He had me on his mind too. And he had every one of you on his mind. He gets to the top of the Mount of Olives. He's preparing to go through the eastern gate that he knows Suleiman will seal because the Bible says God appoints positions of authority. He knew he could get Suleiman the Magnificent to seal it. He knows what's awaiting. But he's coming in and the passage pauses. The passage pauses. Everyone's crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it says, as he drew near, he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city and he wept over it. Wept over it. You see, the passage goes on to say why he cried. He said, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. Your life's complicated. I get it. You've figured it all out. You're one of those in the span of history that have rejected so great a salvation. You're going it on your own. It began with that verse the king came into his kingdom and they hated him and they didn't want him to reign over them. But before he comes into his kingdom riding a white horse as the king, he comes as a messiah and he's doing it now and he's looking over all of his children. He says, look, I get it. Do you want me to move the bullseye to where you are? Do you trust me? Do you want to be reconnected with me? 
Or do you want to reject me and everything about me and come up with your own world and live by your own rules? Or do you want to understand that I am a God who loves you? I took the penalty of your sin upon me. I was bruised and beaten and crucified. All my blood was poured out for the remission of your sins and my righteousness can be put on your account. And there's a transaction. It's real simple. Do you believe me? Because if you do, you'll be saved by faith, by grace through faith. It'll be a gift. And now you're going to come into my kingdom reconciled to me. And your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. And you'll be given eternal life. There will be no judgment, no death, no sorrow. When you fall asleep and you breathe your last breath on this earth, you're going to inhale your first breath in heaven. There's no judgment awaiting you. Because you've been forgiven. You wanted to come back. My daughter Natasha struggled for years. She couldn't embrace. She had come from Russia. We adopted her when she was 12. She couldn't comprehend this Christian stuff. She decided, I'm not doing it. I'm not living by these rules. I love you, mom and dad. I love the framework you've set up, but I'm tired of the rules. I'm gonna go live life on my own. I wanna be the master of my own destiny, and I don't wanna live a life believing in God. Go get him, kid. And I told her, I said, sweetie, everything we have in this house is a result of honoring God and God blessing us. And so you come in under that covering, but then you go out and reject him, but come back in under that covering. And the reality is, for me and my house, we serve the Lord. You, you can't live here if, if you, you're an adult now. You're responsible. You, you can't have the benefits of a family that fears God and then go out and waste it on, on awful living. You've got to decide what you want to do. God's a gentleman. He's not going to force you to do anything. That, that you, you go make that choice. You go figure it out. You find whatever it is you think is better than God. And I told her when she left, I said, sweetie, you only owe me one thing. If you find anything better than Jesus out there, just come tell me. And to her credit, she went out and she tried everything she could find. And one day we got the call. Can I come home? I said, sweetie, you know what awaits you. There is a bed and food, but don't come back for that. This is a, this is a family that lives for God. I want that, Dad. I said, all right, come on home. Come on home. And what I said to her, the Lord had said to me years earlier, I said to her, the Lord said to her, and the God says to you right now, come home. And if you struggle over this idea, if you had known even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, I love how he personalizes it. There was a man who was a, a great theologian, but more importantly, he was assistant commissioner for the Let London Metropolitan Police. He was an inspector uh, from 1881 to 1901, he was also an intelligence officer, theologian, and writer. And all of the great preachers of the time during a very critical moment in Christian history, they so appreciated. This man was a, a vociferous writer. He wrote many books. And one in particular was called The Coming Prince. His name is Sir Robert Anderson. And he wrote this book, and you can find it online, Google. It's a free PDF. It's a great book, and I would encourage you to read it. He started to take Luke 19, John 12, and he started to break it down in accordance with uh, Daniel 9, 24 through 25. Daniel 9, 24 through 25 says that from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the Messiah, there will be 483 years. That's an interesting one. There will be 483 years. So what, they, what he did is he started to take the Hebrew calendar, he started to take a look at all these different aspects, and he broke it down. And he came up with these, these, these weeks, and week meant seven. So seven plus the 62 weeks equals 69 groups of seven. Seven times 69 is 483 years. So Anderson saw this prophetic year as 360 days. We have a 365-day cal calendar. Uh, the Hebrews had 360 days on ancient history, based it. So he comes up, it indicated it was 42 months, three and a half years are equal to 1,260 days. I'll show this momentarily, don't get confused. 483 years times 360 days is 173,880 days. That's all you have to remember. 173,880 days. If you want to do the homework and go look at it deeper, I've given you the source material. Why is 173,880 days important? Because Daniel 9 says when the decree goes forward to rebuild the wall, that clock starts ticking. God sets it in motion. From that moment, you've got 173,880 days. 
When did that decree occur? Artaxerxes started his reign in 465 BC. The decree to rebuild Jerusalem was given on the first day of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. In our calendar system, the Julian calendar, that date would have been March 14th, 445 BC. And that is found in Nehemiah chapter two, verse one, and also concurring history books. And at that moment in Nehemiah chapter two, the clock starts ticking, 173,880 days. Jesus started his ministry in the 15th year of Tiberius. You can find that in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. This is a historical reference. Tiberius started his reign in 14 AD, so Jesus' ministry started in 29 AD. Anderson follows this. Jesus celebrated four Passovers during his ministry, one each in 29, 30, 31, and his final Passover in 32 AD. With the help of the lunar charts, we can calculate the exact date of ancient Passover so it is possible to calculate the exact day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as April 6th, 32 AD. So from 445 BC to 32 AD, there are 476 years in the Julian calendar, not 477 years because there is no year zero. 476 years times 365 days is 173,740 days. Adjusting for the difference between March 14th and April 6th adds 24 days. Adjusting for leap years over a period of 476 years adds 116 days. The total number of days from March 14th, 445 BC to April 6th, 32 AD, 173,740 plus 24 plus 116 equals 173,880 days. When he came into the city... 173,880 days had elapsed. It had been prophetically fulfilled from Daniel 9, Nehemiah 2, and there he is. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. (laughs) 70 weeks of Daniel, it goes on further. I read all of it in its entirety. And the idea is, It's to challenge you. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118, verse 24, verse 26 is what they said. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The previous verse was, this is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. God lays it out. And the sad thing is, Jesus approaches a city and he weeps over it. I'm almost finished. He approaches a city and he weeps over it. He knows what he's about to face. He knows what awaits him. The most horrible, humiliating experience ever encountered, ever encountered, marred more than any other human being on the face of the earth, betrayal by dear friends, all of the sheep would scatter, loss of all human companionship. He's being spit upon, excruciating physical torture. His back is shredded like hamburger meat. He is beaten. His hands are tied behind his back. He's sucker punched. They pull his beard out of his face. But he takes one last look at this glorious city, even knowing what awaits him. And he loves and he weeps and his heart is broken because he's going to pour every last drop of blood for the remission of our sins. And he has even declared it 173,880 days previous. And the prophecy was even thousands of years before that. And he laid it out. And he said, I'm here. And I love you. And I will move heaven and earth to get your attention. You left through that door. It's time to come home. But few were willing to believe his words. He's the only one who can bridge the gap between sinful man and a holy God. And you think, well, why is he taking so long? Revelation 3 says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. And you're saying, why is it taking so long? Where have you been? Well, remember this. The Lord answered that as well. Second Peter chapter three, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's waiting because he cares. And all we look at is go, well, it's been thousands of years To a God who is eternal, a thousand years is but a day. And that God who holds the heavens in the span of his hand is waiting for you 
today, he declares in the last book of the Bible, he says, excuse me, in 2 Corinthians 6, he says, in an acceptable time I've heard you, and in the day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The Lord just said, look, I'm here. I've always been here. I've laid it out. You can whistle by the graveyard on the way to completing your dash and pretend I'm not here. The rocks will cry out. You can't look at the night sky without having a deep emotion. You can take antidepressants so you don't feel anything, but you and I both know the pain is the reality of the groaning that it was never intended to be this way. And now I want to reconcile you to myself and even the pain I'm going to use together for good to, to, to my glory, you're going to see it. I've been on this earth 55 years and he's worked all things together for good. There are some things I'm waiting for. But he's never let me down. Never. And I know it's hard because we have expectations of the Lord. We lost a loved one or a friend or a child. Or we've been diagnosed. And we think God's not fair. <laughs> you have no idea. All of this misery and all the things we experience are the result of sin brought on this earth by man. His Holy Spirit is restraining evil. It could be exponentially worse. And even in the midst of your heartache and your loss, he will use it together for good to manifest and minister in ways you could never imagine. Just trust him. Otherwise, you can reject him and live your empty conflicted, warring, bitter, unforgiving life. You can hate me and everyone else and pick those that agree with you and those that don't and just hate them and, and, and try to seek a world without any influence of me or the God I speak of. Or today you can come to salvation because he loves you so much he's weeping over you. He wants you to have the scales removed and you would understand that he has moved heaven and earth, that you would know the truth and the truth would set you free. He's the Prince of Peace. He's come to resolve the conflict. He's come to give you peace and life more abundant. And all it begins with is simply this. God, move the bullseye to where I am. Will you save me? And you know what he will say? Yes, a thousand times yes. Yes. 